This is the Overclocked Podcast, a weekly dose of video game music and conversation from ocremix.org. This week, we venture into Andrew Aversa's new roguelike, Tangle Deep. Observe the ostinato of Hyperlight Drifter in an episode of Between the Lines and travel to distant lands in an atmospheric playlist. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to episode 59 of the Overclocked Podcast. I can't think of anything numerically significant about that, so instead I'm just going to say I am your host, Brian, and joining me today is my brother and co-host, Stephen. Hello, Stephen. Whoa, I like the dramatic pause. You're still my brother. You're still my brother, and you're still my co-host. That hasn't changed, but there is something a little strange about this intro. Don't you feel it? I feel it in the air. Yes, I've noticed it in the reverb on your voice as well. I think we seem to be in some sort of cave or mysterious environment. Yes, it is almost like we are deep within a tangle of environments. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yes, yes. I have to admit, it is pretty cool that one of the uh, OC remixers and classic members of the community is now getting into game development. It's very awesome. <laughs> yeah, and, and dragging dragging others along with him. Mm, yes, I say this in the interview, but I didn't realize he was making pretty much the whole game until now. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's very it's very cool. Andrew Aversa, also known as Zircon, you'll hear from him very soon in the interview. But, I mean, we got more weird, mysterious environments to... Uh, permeate because speaking of deep speaking of deep hyperlight drifter wait wait is that where you're going for no what i was i was <laughs> going for that but i was going for how darn in-depth this segment is <laughs> oh my yes. gosh laura and travia is back and in full form let me tell you um it was uh <laughs> i was at the mercy of her notes when editing yeah like a segment. six page essay from her <laughs> And yeah, it's going to be a crazy segment that hopefully teaches you all a lot about music theory, or at the very least makes you feel dumb. (laughs) Is it okay if it did both of those things? (laughs) It is perfect if it did both of those things. Good, good. Um, And of course, the playlist, it all kind of worked out, didn't it? We're going to hear about atmospheric music. Yeah, it's almost like we planned this. Well, I mean, we did to an extent, but this whole... uh, zircon thing kind of happened at the last second i'm not being sarcastic i'm saying it's almost like we planned it Uh, yes that's incredibly accurate and speaking of almost planning things it is time for the remix rewind where we run down the latest from overclockedremix.org scandal jade neal leads a parade of first-time remixers this week He's recruited OC remixer Larks for an all-out command and conquer track. They're called React. It's machine gun fire rattling over the explosions of bombs as this metal monster crushes its enemies with a megaton of sound and fury.
The newcomer sibling remix duo known as Timeime, Sources and Mickey saves the day in their relaxed lullaby titled What Else? Sleepy Baby Weasel Dork. It's the musical equivalent of a giant down comforter. You can fall into it with a giant sigh and get back every last one of your hit points. Another new remixer, River Sound has crafted a daring reimagining of a minor track from Final Fantasy IX titled Fixations. Folksy and light in a familiar way, this track feels like it would fit right in around a campfire as you share tales of love and loss, glory and defeat. Our fourth new artist to debut this week is MLHO7, who's put some swagger into Street Fighter 2 with Chun Li's theme, Funky Flute Mix. It's a portrait of the fighter just hanging out, a rare moment in her day where there are no faces to kick or cars to destroy.
Avarice takes on Chrono Cross with Traversing the Ether. Deep and reverent, the music takes us on a tour of the crystal-lined cave, sometimes huge and hollow, sometimes close enough to study in depth. We're shown the tune from different angles as it bounces its scattered light off a thousand crystal facets. Magitech Research Symphony, the newest Final Fantasy VI entry from remixer Rebecca E. Tripp, takes us on a guided tour of the Wicked Workshops of the Empire, where heretical science renders the spirits of legendary beings into machines of war. Whatever you do, stay with the tour group at all times. these remixes and more, head over to ocremix.org. Hey, welcome back. This is another 
episode of the Intune Interview, where we talk to music makers about the music that they make. I'm Steven, your host again. Brian may have filled in for me the other week, but I'm back to the old grind. And this time we have um, local OC remixer and musician Andrew Aversa, who you might know as Zircon. Hey, welcome to the show, Andrew. Hey, yeah. Uh, well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It is our pleasure. Trust me, it definitely is. Uh, it also is very exciting to me that we're not just talking about music this time, but you're kind of making a video game. <laughs> Boy, I didn't think I was going to be doing this <laughs> a few years ago. <laughs> but uh, yes, yeah, Tangle Deep, that's what it's called. And uh, I have posted about it on Facebook a few times and the OC mm -hmm. Remix forums and people are like, oh yeah, cool, yeah, you're doing the music. That, that's really cool. And then mm -hmm. it's like, no, no, I'm, I'm like like all of it <laughs> not the art but everything else the code and the design and the audio you've uh you know written music for a video game or two in your life right yes yes i have like what's some of the stuff you've done before this the chronological going backwards, um, the last project that came out I worked on was uh, Recore with uh, Chad Sider. So I did uh, mm -hmm. synth production and drum production, all the cool hybrid sounds, which I love doing that stuff. And then Tap My Katamari. Uh, that was fun to be able to say I wrote for a Katamari game. You Whoa, I didn't know you did that. <laughs> I didn't really, That's I didn't awesome. really announce it, I guess. Uh, that was fun. Yeah, we we did. Um, I did some original music, and then we also got to remix J Jill and I, uh, Lonely Rolling Star. We did a little version of that. So it's a mobile game, but I mean, it's pretty cool. It's sort of sort of like a uh, like adventure capitalists um, or uh, cookie clicker or something like that. So you, know, you get your upgrades, yeah. you roll the ball, and all that's fun. Yeah. And then uh, you know, aside from that, uh, a few years ago, was Soul Calibur Five. After that was Dungeon Man's, which got kickstarted. So you know kind of a mix of, of big stuff with big companies and then small stuff. I guess I'm just kind of assuming that the audience of the show already knows about your work from OC Remix, but just in case we have, you know, people listening in and hearing about you for the first time, what's the quick version of that? How did you get involved? Uh, I, well, honestly, I haven't released too much lately on OCR because I haven't had enough time to make game remixes yeah. as much time as I had when I was in high school and college. So it's quite possible, uh, you know, if you were just looking at the last few years, you wouldn't see a lot of my tracks. I That's a good point. I started on the site uh, 2003 is when I landed in the community as, as an idiot high school kid that <laughs> didn't know anything mm -hmm. about music. And I actually, Seattle Overcoat, or better known as just Overcoat, um, he was the one that actually uh, listened to my first awful remix and gave me some advice. And mm -hmm. I'm not kidding. He actually said, you know, you should use a different synth. And I was like, well, what's a synth? <laughs> like, <laughs> I was just, you know, throwing loops together. I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. But, uh, but I, you know, I, I had a lot of fun with it. So I made a whole bunch of other awful remixes, some of which got rejected. The ones I elected to submit got rejected. I think I submitted four and they all got rejected. Um, uh -huh. and then after that, I started getting a little bit better. So, so after I started getting actually posted to the site in, in 2004 ish. Uh, I think I've done 
I don't know, about 30, 30 or so remixes I've, I've been involved with. And I directed the Final Fantasy VI project, Balanced and Ruin, and Seven, uh, Voices of the Livestream. I was a judge for a while, and I've, I've tried to stay, uh, even though I haven't had as much time to make remixes, I, I try to stay active, if nothing else, in the site staff, um, you know, contributing to panels and that sort of thing. So I, I may not be as prolific as I once was, but OC Remix is absolutely still, you know, it's my home in many ways. Yeah, and it seems like you've been di- diversifying, like in a way, into all kinds of other projects. Like we had a feature on Super Audio Cart a few months back, and that's another thing you know you were busy with for a long time. So y- you've got a lot going on. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I guess uh, I guess what it boils down to is that I, I I've had all these different interests since uh, since I was young. I was interested in computer science and technology and music and so i've just been sort of trying to and video games of course trying to just uh follow follow my passions as as best i can and usually it works out Som- sometimes it doesn't i've been involved in in many projects that have gone nowhere i <laughs> just don't usually yep. hear about them <laughs> mm-hmm. me too <laughs> in fact this podcast is probably the first project anyone has ever heard about that i worked on <laughs> well it's great so you should be proud hey thanks thanks but uh Concerning your project, have you ever been involved in game development before beyond writing music for it? The funny story that I I guess I, I tell people this, but really my parents had to remind me is that I, I think I was making board games out of tissue boxes. Like I'd open up the tissue box and like scribble some stuff with a pen and get some pieces together. I was doing that like when I, since I was five, really, really young. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I've just always been sort of fascinated with with you know, the design of video games or board games, video games, you know, any kind of game. Um, and, uh, the, the first thing I ever did was, uh, with, with a computer game of some kind was, uh, using QBasic, you know, basic, the programming language, um, Mm -hmm. from the seventies and eighties. So I, I made a, it was a final fantasy quote unquote fighting game. It was just text. You picked a character like cloud or red 13. You had, your list of moves, and again, this is all text, there's no graphics. Yeah. And you'd say, uh-huh. like, I want to cast Meteor, and uh, it would do that, and it would say, you did 100 damage. And so um, <laughs> I, I was kind of doing that super hobbyist stuff as a, as a young kid. And then um, sort of in middle school and high school, I, I did some some fun side projects like uh, different sorts of arena RPGs um, using IRC, uh, MIRC script. So you could actually do that. You could have people in the chat uh, typing commands like, you know, uh, attack so-and-so or cast a fire one on whoever. So, I mean, that that was all the sort of the hobbyist experience. Um, on a <laughs> professional level, no, I actually have not had any experience creating <laughs> a, a shipped, you know, uh, game from scratch. Uh, I certainly contributed. Um, like, uh-huh. I worked on a, a game, Returnal Robots, back in 2009. I did music for that game, but I also did some level design. Mm-hmm. So, all the puzzles of the game, I, I did those. Okay. Uh, and then Dungeon Man's, another um, indie thing, I I did some game design for that, but not programming. I've, I've been working on this since February 2016, and when I started out, I legitimately did not know, how do I get a sprite to draw on the screen? Like, let's... <laughs> <laughs> the very basic square one square those are my favorite kinds of projects where you're actually learning how the concepts work as you develop yeah but you know that's i've, I've always been like that with picking up new things with with music production yeah. i just wanted to dive into it and if i had to learn more uh as i went and, and make a bunch of bad stuff then i i did so obviously the game that 
if you were to look at six months ago, what Tangle Deep looked like, it, it looks completely different now. Uh, the graphics are completely different. The <laughs> gameplay, the code look, looks entirely different. And I've benefited tremendously from some very skilled and experienced game developers that have given me advice and have helped me solve problems. So I may have mm-hmm. come from from nothing, but thanks to them and thanks to other resources on the Internet, uh, I feel like I actually have a, a game that resembles something pretty cool, even though it's nowhere near done. Well, what's it looking like right now? Like, what's Tangle Deep about? Tangle Deep is a 16-bit dungeon crawler. You know, you go uh, procedurally generated, a different adventure every time you play, monsters to find, you know, the, that archetype, but then fused with the uh, the aesthetic of all the classic Super Nintendo games that I grew up playing. So, like, Secret of Mana and Lufia 2, Terranigma, Chrono Trigger, games like that. Um, mm-hmm. So whereas I think in the West we had a lot of the uh, the dungeon crawlers with these you know really intricate stats and all this cool equipment to find and really kind of you could make your own path and maybe it wasn't really story heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess more recent examples would be games like the Diablo series. Uh, you know, JRPGs were sort of the opposite and they had all, you know, beautiful graphics, beautiful pixel art. But then, you know, it's kind of a little more linear and, and streamlined. So I'm trying to combine both those things together. So you've got the polish and the accessibility of those, you know, classic JRPGs. Everything's really, you know, kind of charming to look at. Uh, it's going to support mouse, keyboard, controller, so different ways to play. But then it's also got that, that, that sort of the deep uh, roguelike gameplay that I think a lot of people want to like. Um, and, and certainly the rogue lights that have come out like FTL and rogue legacy have kind of shown that people like those elements, but they have to be in a package that looks good Mm -hmm. and that, that feels, that feels good. Yeah. What if square Enix made a roguelike (laughs) on the the super Nintendo? That's a powerful question. (laughs) That was the, that was, I think the, probably the, the thing I was going into, like what made those games feel so good? So that's something I wanted to ask you about. Permadeath is a big part of these games. But from what I have seen and felt and heard from Tangle Deep, the mood is very mysterious. It can even be relaxing. Well, what I want to try to do is make it feel like when you die, you know, it's not that your character is lost forever. I, I want to give it more of the mood that, you know, you're just going to end up back in town. And mm-hmm. if you want to play the same character again, you can. Or if you want to restart a new one, that, that's fine too. The idea is you'll be able to take some things with you. Um, there's some persistence. There's a banker that you can store items with. And mm-hmm. so if you die, it's like the world goes on. You're going to end up back at town. Yes, you're back to level one, etc. But, you know, oh, you, you put away some items for a rainy day. You can, you can get those back. Yeah. I just want it to feel, like you said, I don't want it to feel so dangerous uh, you know, that doesn't quite match with the art. There are games right. like Darkest Dungeon where it's, you know, super grim. Uh, right. This, I want it to feel like, you know, a little bit more of an adventure. Yeah, it, it's a roguelike, but the point isn't to punish you. Yes, exactly. It's not punitive. Um, I'm also working on the the whole metagame sort of progression. So, uh, again, we have this sort of banker character in the game already that can uh, store and uh, you can deposit and withdraw items, mm-hmm. which is great. Uh, but then uh, we have our, one of our artists, uh, Andrew Lures, Ocean's Andrew, uh, or uh-huh. just OA on OCR. Um, he is doing this beautiful environmental art that has been just a joy to put in. Including that waterfall in the starting area from the build? <laughs> yes, yes. The I town love is that. Like... Tell him that he did an amazing job with that waterfall. 
I, I, I will tell him. I'm, <laughs> I love it. That's the, it's, it's 512 by 512 pixels. And if you just think oh. of it, multiply those together, how many pixels that is. And he's expanding it and he's doing wow. custom art. That sort of hand painted art for, um, all of the sort of special areas of the game. So at the moment there's three, there, there's also two boss areas in the game right now. Uh, obviously there's going to be more, uh, but he's also, we're, we're kind of continuously improving, you know, the game is randomly generated, but it's based on tiles and mm-hmm. all these interesting objects that can be there. So at first it was just sort of earth and, and walls like earth and walls. And now it's got rivers, lava, mud, there are trees that are growing in the dungeon. Uh, so we want to keep expanding on that to give every level of the game, that same level of polish, like to actually go see a flowing river, uh, as you explore the dungeon or to see, you know, like this beautiful grove, um, which actually I think is probably the most influenced by something like Etrian Odyssey than anything. I love those games. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty amazing. I really like the sound of that. And uh, also shout out to Andrew Lures. He did the artwork for this podcast. So he's just all over the place. Oh, I, I did not know that connection. That's awesome. Yeah, he's, yeah. Uh, he's a super great yeah. guy. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, it, it, so who else is on the team? Is there you have more art guys or? There's two other artists on the team. Uh, one of them is, uh, he just goes by Fervor, F-E-R-V-I-R, but he's uh-huh. also just a complete badass that I met on uh, TIG Source, T-I-G Source. And he's doing all of those, the just the personality and all the characters, uh, the monsters, the playable jobs, the NPCs. Uh, he's done such an amazing job of uh, communicating that, that feel I was going for, you know, it's not super anime, super deformed. It's not super mm-hmm. serious. Um, but it, you know, it's somewhere in between, which is really cool. And he's also doing all the battle art. So the things like the spell effects and, and things like that. So that's just, he's doing such an awesome job there. And then the last person is a uh, Lachlan Cartland who is doing all the items. And of course, any great dungeon crawler, you need loot. You need lots and lots of loot. Mm-hmm. So, rings food weapons uh everything like that and he's he's sending me like every week i get a sheet of of 10 to 12 new awesome sprites you know like scythes and you know full metal plates and things like that and actually at this very moment i have more item art than i have actual items in the game so there's <laughs> a good problem to have <laughs> there's much more con- much more content to come but other than that i mean that that's the core team it's the three artists there's me um there are people that i talk to um certainly i, I have to say you know, Jim Shepard, the developer for Dungeon Man, has helped me immensely. You know, when I hit a wall, I said, I don't know how to solve this. You know, he, he's helped me tremendously, but he's not actively programming the game. You know, he's more of more of the, the guru consultant. It becomes very apparent to me how, how very difficult game development actually is when, you, when you're handling all these things yourself. So how did you go about writing the music for something like this? The, the first thing that I did was uh, very early on was I wanted to write like kind of a very thematic, uh, melodic thing that would capture the essence of heroically charging into the dungeon and exploring. So I, I wanted to take a simple sample set for this. You know, I figured, again, what made a lot of those games so catchy, and, and this is a topic I'm sure has been discussed, you know, a million times, 
by everybody, but, mm-hmm. but it's true when you have a more limited sample set, sometimes you have to focus more on melody. So I figured I'm going to just limit myself to the Super Audio Card SNES palette and, and write like that uh, using, again, like strings, harp, mm-hmm. uh, different woodwind leads. Uh, but when you put it through the lens of the Super Nintendo kind of sounds, it, it, it immediately comes out very charming. And very yeah. nostalgic, at least for me. I got the same sensation. There's something about those SNES harps going up and down <laughs> that it's just, I don't know, lulls you into a peaceful mindset. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And what I what I would like to do, and uh, you'll uh, you'll see this actually on, on my SoundCloud page. I've, I've uploaded it. Is uh, I'm doing uh, modern versions of a bunch of the tracks too, because I know I, I realize that maybe not everybody necessarily has the same sort of nostalgic connection as we might, you know, uh-huh. you know, a game like Undertale, just as an example, that has 8-bit sounds, has 16-bit sounds, but it also has, you know, modern sounds in it too. And I, I yeah. think it's interesting how they sort of weave that together. So I figure there'll be two versions. You'll be able to switch back and forth to sort of the classic sound and the more modern production, which will have some live instruments in it too. That's awesome. I'm very happy to hear you say that because as I was listening, I was thinking, but what would it sound like? What would it sound like? Yeah, that's really cool. I love it when games let you switch back and forth like that. Hopefully, both of those soundtracks will be available outside of the game. I'm going to hold you to that. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, with, without a doubt. And uh, and you'll see this on the, on the Kickstarter page. I, I really want to have special guests involved as well. You know, I listened to Shovel Knight you know, Jake's, uh, I'm sure you know Jake's mm-hmm. awesome work mm-hmm. on that and how he had the uh, the Mega Man composer kind of guest appearing on the track. Yep, yeah. Uh, and I love that idea. So we reached out to Hiroki Kikuta, you know, Secret of Mana. And oh, so he's... okay. <laughs> he's going to be, if all goes well, uh, in other words, if the Kickstarter gets funded, because this is sort of an, this is an extra budget thing. My own personal budget is going into making the making the game, getting the art. The Kickstarter right. is sort of, sort of for that extra mile of polish um, and, the, and the bonus of having additional people. So he, he's down, he's on board uh, to contribute to the soundtrack, which I, I think would be awesome. And, I, and I've invited some other people, um, those names I don't want to say yet, because mm-hmm. uh, Kikuta is for sure. But um, I've invited some other people as well. And again, if, if the Kickstarter works out, then I would love to have, you know, my 12 tracks, but then also have, you know, two, three, maybe four other guest composers all contributing and with their own unique take uh, in this world. That's amazing. This is my first time hearing about this. <laughs> That's awesome. Huh, thank you. Um, and, you know, speaking of um, Shovel Knight soundtrack, there was also that remix album that came out, uh, Strike the Earth. Absolutely, yes. That would be a super neat thing to do as well. You know, maybe a month or two down the road, once the game is out, get some people in there and just remix the heck out of it and release a second album. I'd be on board for that. I I would absolutely love to do that. We did it for uh for Dungeon Man's when when that came out a few years oh, yeah, ago. Yeah. I and that. I think for this it's it'll be extra special because I'm <laughs> making the game also, so it's like extra important <laughs> to me. Yeah. Um what, in in particular what I want to do is and, and this is something again where I feel like the the Kickstarter will, will be helpful depending on how it does is I actually want to pay everybody involved that was something with dungeon man's it was like a free thing on mm-hmm. oc remix and and this remix album you know could be free also but actually i want to i want to pay people for their time for it so mm-hmm. if, I, if i'm able to raise more money than the original kickstarter goal you know a lot of that is just going to go into you know hey you guys are awesome remixers here's some money go remix this i think people deserve it you know totally 
it's another cool thing that you can do with Kickstarter. Like it opens up a lot of these doors that you would just have to keep closed otherwise. Yeah. So the the goal of the Kickstarter, again, to be clear, uh, is to add extra polish to the game. It, mm-hmm. It's to get additional art. Uh, it's to get additional music from from guest composers and also to add to the possible live instrument budget. Um, and beyond that, the game is going to get done no matter what. So that that's the right. position that I've wanted to put myself in before I even considered doing a Kickstarter to say that this game is going to get done. I'm I will do it. I have I've been paying for everything out of pocket. So this is the idea of this is the, the extra polish, right? There aren't any physical rewards, but the digital rewards are pretty cool. You know, it goes from everything from, you know, cre- name in the credits. That's like the five dollar thing. Mm-hmm. There's a copy of the digital soundtrack. The the copy of the game and the soundtrack is fifteen dollars. So that's going to be a, a better deal than when it's on Steam later on. Right. Steam, I think it's probably going to be fifteen for just the game. Um, and it kind of goes up from there. Um, you know, for the people that really ha- love the game and that that want again, it, it's playable. You can you can download and play it right now. This is this isn't you know like a pie mm-hmm. in the sky kind of thing. You can already play it. And if it seems really cool and they want to say you know I love this so much, I want to actually have a little bit more of a part in it. Uh, some of the upper tiers are like contributing to an actual like a, a new monster or a oh, specific yeah. item like to actually design the item, not just have it named after you, but uh, to, uh, to to really have your hand in the game. So where can people go find out more about Tinkle Deep? And I assume just searching for it on Kickstarter is a good start. Absolutely. Yes, it's it's under its own name on Kickstarter. There's also TangleDeep.com that has a link to uh, the Kickstarter. Also the latest playable builds for Windows and Mac, as well as the mailing list. So in case you want to just stay up to date on like, you know, the biggest news for the game. So uh, we've only used it once just for the Kickstarter. Uh, So in the future, the next one might be like a when it goes into alpha and then when it goes into beta. Uh, So tangledeep.com is is sort of the the main place. And from there, there's also a development log linked to. So I've been posting for uh, seven or eight months now, pretty much the whole process of making this game from the start oh, has wow. been has been documented. Uh, not from okay, not from the very very start when I didn't know how to put a spread on the screen, but <laughs> close. And that's linked off tangledeep.com also. Yeah, I didn't know about that. That's neat. Well, is there anything we missed? Anything we should bring up before we peace out here? I do believe that you've you've covered everything, and thank you for the uh, the kind words and words of support. Oh yeah, it is my pleasure. Very happy to have you on the show and really excited to see where this goes. Like seriously, everything I've seen from it is just has been beautiful. So good work so far. And uh, now it's time for us to head back to the rest of the show. I've recently gotten completely hooked on a game called Hyper Light Drifter. I was first exposed to the music at this past MAGFest when my friends in the band Disco Cactus performed an arrangement from the soundtrack. I was immediately drawn to the dark and colorful harmonies, And now that I'm actually playing the game, I'm even more impressed by how completely the music immerses me in this truly mysterious game. The soundtrack was written by Rich Reland, also known as Disasterpiece. He's most well known for his work on this game as well as Fez and the film It Follows. 
When researching for this episode, I found an article written in 2016 by Lewis Gordon on FactMag.com in which he interviews Rich about the music to Hyperlight Drifter, and Lewis describes my experience of the in-game score perfectly. It's a system that is able to handle the game's dramatic shifts from reflection to destruction, and always under the direction of player agency. The score follows suit, giving the players space to digest the action on screen. He then goes on to quote the composer directly. Disasterpiece says, I was definitely channeling ideas about impressionism, composers like Debussy and Ravel, the way they extend traditional harmony into different places. Wow, that was not a term I would have expected to describe a video game soundtrack, but it's absolutely the perfect way to capture the essence of Hyper Light Drifter. Impressionism was actually an artistic trend that emerged in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Artists would use color and light to essentially blur our focus of the fine details of the image they were creating, and instead they would make literally an impression of the image that we're looking at. The work of the French artist Monet is a great example. The Impressionist musical movement occurred around the same time as a response, and according to Wikipedia, the most prominent feature of musical Impressionism is the use of color or timbre, which can be achieved through orchestration, harmonic usage, texture, and so on. Other elements of music Impressionism involve new chord combinations, ambiguous tonality, extended harmonies, and the list of specific musical elements gets more complex as it goes on. descriptors of ambiguity and color cut to the heart of Impressionism. If we're comparing it to the artistic movement, the music sounds blurry or indefinite. There are countless ways a composer can employ Impressionistic techniques in their music, but let's just look at a few that Disasterpiece made use of, and to that end, we'll just focus on one track from Hyperlight Drifter, The Midnight Wood. quick look at the compositional structure overall. This piece is based off of an ostinato, which is a constantly repeating melodic or rhythmic fragment or both, but since the pitches in this ostinato are changing almost every measure, we would describe this as a rhythmic ostinato. After stating the ostinato, the composer starts introducing a soundscape around it, a bass instrument anchoring the harmonies, a rich, warm, cello-like tone swelling on both random single pitches and tonal clusters, and then finally, some melodic fragments as the piece progresses. Now, it's important to note that this isn't exactly how the music is experienced in the game. For the purposes of the soundtrack, it's all of the variations of the theme in a row, but in the game you would experience these different sections crossfading in and out of each other depending on where you are in the game or what enemies you may have encountered, but the compositional structure is there. The ostinato drives the piece forward, the bass grounds the more specific harmony, and the rest of the elements sort of swirl around these two focal points. Now let's talk about Impressionistic influences. Let's start with timbres, or color. Wikipedia mentioned the importance of timbres in orchestration when it comes to Impressionism. 
Disaster Piece makes use of mostly synthetic instruments, if not entirely, but there's no question that he carefully orchestrated his use of which timbres to combine for different intensities or feelings. The timbres are constantly changing throughout this track, and I could go through each one and describe how I hear it, but in the interest of time for this episode, I think this is all I'm going to say on timbres, but I do want to point out that Disaster Piece pays particular attention to what timbres he's using. Even when it comes to these 8-bit, 16-bit old-school sounds, he gets a lot of color and variety out of them, and it has a huge impact on how I hear each of these variations of the theme. Let's talk about rhythm. Here's a question for you. Where do you hear the strong beats in each measure? Is it this? Or do you hear it like this? When my friend Doug transcribed this for Disco Cactus's performance, he notated it in the second style, which is a quadruple compound. Each of the beats is dividing into three. One, two, three, one, two, three, and there's four beats per measure. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four, one. But I hear it the first way, which would be triple simple. One and two and three and one and two and three. I hear three strong beats, and each one divides into two. Why are we each perceiving it so differently? It's the ostinato, this totally smooth and uninterrupted rhythmic pattern at the outset of the piece. There are no accents or natural stresses to clue us into where the strong beats fall. It simply goes. Now later on in this piece, the ostinato actually drops out and we have a slightly different rhythmic variety underneath. It's still reflecting the same chords and it's still an ostinato, but it's not the same one. I argue that based on the way the second one feels to me, that this entire piece is truly in simple triple meter rather than compound duple. It just seems to fit this rhythmic pattern a little bit better. But the fact that Doug and I both heard it two different ways is a testament to just how perfectly ambiguous the rhythm is. It's the only fast-moving part. The rest of the soundscape surrounding the ostinato has a feeling almost of randomness to it, the way the pitches sort of swell in and out of each other. And what small fragments of melody that we do get are similarly broad and do nothing to really clarify how the beats are dividing. This creates that feeling of ambiguity, again, that element that's so important to Impressionism. Now let's talk about harmonic language, and I'm going to break this down into really simple terms for people that are not as well-versed in music theory as other people might be. Traditional tonal harmony, think Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, so on, is built on triads. That is to say, three notes arranged in stacks of thirds. This is a third. This is a third. And the third refers to the distance between the notes. This is a C major chord, and I would describe the sound of it as being simple and clear or stable. Let's say we added another third on top of these, like a minor third. Or a major third. The chord has maybe become less simple, but it's still a relatively clear sound to me. But the more notes I add, the more complex and less clear the chords can become. And this is just building thirds upon a single major chord. Imagine if I did that to a progression or a few chords in a row. It 
it's starting to get a little weird, right? Not necessarily in a bad way, but these are no longer simple, easy chords anymore. And we were just stacking thirds. What if I added a note that's not a third away, like a sixth? There's the sixth. Or I can add a second instead. I can mess with the triad itself too. This is me just adding different pitches to it, but I can change the inner notes too. You can probably still hear vaguely the impression of the chords we were originally working with, but it's become significantly more complex to your ear and harder to pinpoint where exactly it's going to go next. Now let's look at Midnight Wood, and we'll jump to one of its more richly orchestrated passages. Here are the basic chords I hear underneath. have a mix of simpler tonalities versus more complex tonalities. The chords could have been simple triads, but they're not. We can hear the original functions of the chords clearly, and we hear that relationship to each other, but it's been blurred by, basically, the added pitches. That's the nature of impressionistic music. Composers would explore tonalities that were less clear and more unstable and this would allow them to move in unexpected harmonic directions. And speaking of unexpected directions, let's move from just the chords themselves to the relationship between them and talk about the harmonic progression. It's time to oversimplify again when we're writing music in a key, and in the case of the Midnight Wood, the key is F-sharp minor. Think of this as home. When composers write more than one chord in a row, that's called a chordal progression, or harmonic progression. There are certain chords in a key that operate in strong and weak relationships to each other. This probably makes sense to your ear. It travels in a way that you can follow, and the end of the progression feels like home. On the F-sharp minor chord, or the tonic chord, that pattern makes sense, while this one maybe doesn't. One of those chords doesn't belong in this key. I had to borrow pitches from outside the scale to make it, and it probably sounded a little odd for a second because it doesn't have a strong relationship with the chord that comes after it, for example. That being said, you can use chords from outside the key. There's no rule that says you can't but you can make the most of stronger relationships. Now that borrowed chord makes a little more sense and doesn't sound so surprising, because it has a harmonic relationship to the chord following it. Now let's listen to the Midnight Wood again with my chords added. Stop right there. That right there is a surprising chord choice. Remember, this was home. So where does this chord come from? That doesn't really fit with the sound world that we know to be F sharp minor. 
the reason why this chord pops out so much, at least to me, is that it doesn't fit in the minor mode. It's not a chord that naturally occurs, but it's also not something that fits in the major mode either. It's built off of a pitch that we find in the major mode. But this isn't a chord that naturally occurs. We have to borrow pitches to make this happen. Especially when we complexify it like that with an added pitch, the seventh. Now, is this chord choice just random? Impressionistic music isn't necessarily atonal. The harmonies are ambiguous and weird, but there's usually some kind of a reason, however unconventional for each chord choice. So, is this random? I don't think so. And the reason it doesn't sound random to me is the ostinato. These two chords share a common tone, or same pitch. I'm going to reorganize the pitches slightly so you can hear it. F-sharp minor, B-flat major 7. It's admittedly an unconventional choice of common tone, but a common tone nonetheless, and because that common tone is on the downbeat, a strong beat of the ostinato, it has a natural stress, and that common tone, that pitch we recognize between the chords, creates a sense of familiarity that makes this chord seem not quite as random. And this is how impressionism works. There are patterns or relationships in the ambiguity. There's something that makes sense to our ears and guides us through the strange harmonies. The ostinato the unchanging rhythmic pattern that is present throughout almost the entire piece creates that guidance. And the use of common tones between each phrase of the ostinato, and therefore between each chord, allows Rich to use unconventional harmonies throughout the entire theme. The common tones themselves are very close together, and they only change by a half-step and circle around A, which is the very first note we hear in the piece. In terms of the F-sharp chord, it's the third, which determines whether we are in minor or major. I'm probably going to write a blog post with more in-depth information on the harmonic language and specific chords used and how the common tones operate, but let's move on and talk about why any of the stuff we just discussed matters. Because let's remember this is video game music, and its purpose is to support the atmosphere or the environment that the player is in. And here's another element of Impressionism at work. Cool titles. This piece is called The Midnight Wood, and the title is literally referring to the area of the game you're exploring. For those of you who haven't played or seen the artwork, you're exploring a crystallized forest colored in deep pinks and blues, surrounded by deep chasms illuminated by a hazy, sea-green type light. It's beautiful and haunting to behold, and the harmonic language fits it perfectly. It's enigmatic, but ultimately tranquil. I'm not sure I think the ostinato literally represents anything in this area. The strongest argument I could make is that the variety of enemy you find in this zone, including spiders, wolves, and knights, move very quickly. They come out of nowhere and they often surprised me. It could be the ostinato is reflecting their activity amid the lifeless crystal forest, but again, I'm not sure I hear it that literally. All in all, the music is mysterious. The way the harmonies operate, the fragments of melody and tones and chord clusters swelling in and out, the gentle but implacable ostinato driving the action forward, it's rich and evocative, and it enhances the experience without being distracting as you play. 
As a closing point, I'm reminiscing right now about the first time I ever had to analyze music in a theory class, and how much it sort of overwhelmed and in some ways even confused me, because it's weird, right? Debussy's music feels organic and beautiful and expressive, which makes it seem really odd and sort of backwards to pick apart each individual note and its distance from each other and figure out what inversion a chord is in. It feels more like math than enjoying music at first. So if you're listening to this and feeling similarly overwhelmed and maybe even a little turned off by the analysis, just remember, the point of this is to absorb like basic principles rather than finite details themselves. My takeaway from this is not, it is harmonically surprising but ultimately satisfying to move from an F sharp minor sus4 to a B flat major minor seven by way of an A natural. Like that's not how I'm thinking of this. My takeaway is it is possible by way of common tones to move to almost any chord. That idea is interesting to me. As a composer, I'd like to play around with that idea more. And I don't think Disasterpiece necessarily sat down to write the Midnight Wood thinking, I will construct an ostinato that circles around A over and over again more than any other pitch. I think it's far more likely that he started improvising and then intuitively started to find a pattern he liked, maybe just messing around on the piano. And speaking of piano, I highly encourage you to check out a track on the soundtrack called Panacea. It's a live solo piano performance, unlike the rest of the synthesized soundtrack, and it reminds me very strongly of the sort of harmonic language and thoughtful meandering Debussy or Ravel might have used in their solo piano works. I actually listened to this piece quite a bit while I was writing this episode. I've always found impressionistic music to be meditative or reflective, perfect music to write to, and Disasterpiece's soundtrack is no exception. What an atmospheric show. What an atmospheric show. And here we are at the end, just floating in the void together. Mm -hmm. To find out more about this podcast and OC Remix in general, head over to ocremix.org. To find out more about how we tweet about this podcast and OC Remix in general, head over to OCR Podcast on Twitter. To find out more about emailing us, email us at podcast at ocremix.org. That sounds counterintuitive. I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, thanks to Sin Shadas for writing all those great remix rewinds. We greatly appreciate it each and every week. Oh, and Andrew, thanks for the interview, dude. That was really fun. And Laura, thanks for teaching us about many, many things that we did not previously know about. That was like an exceptionally well-made segment. I, I like that she brought along the piano this time. It worked really well. Absolutely. And speaking of many things that we did not previously know of, why don't we go ahead and jump into this week's playlist? Oh, well... You don't want to? Mm, eh. Are you sure? I mean, that was a pretty good segue. Uh, yeah, okay. What are you not... Okay. Yeah. 
The Playlist is a weekly collection of listener-submitted recommendations so we can all discover music together. This week's theme is atmospheric music. Cascades from Hyperlight Drifter and submitted by Major Third. Night of the Dark Dream from Kingdom Hearts Birth by Sleep and submitted by Square Evil. The Menu Theme from Spore and submitted by Patchpin. Battlescape from UFO Enemy Unknown and submitted by Ano.
Smells like crickets, tastes like chicken. From Age of Empires 2 and submitted by Genghis Donnie. Tree of Life Roots from Pokemon Super Mystery Dungeon and submitted by Timaeus222. In-game music one from Skeleton Crew and submitted by Lazy Gecko. to the asteroid from the dig and submitted by Yorito.
Skyrim Atmospheres from the Elder Scrolls V Skyrim and submitted by me. from Elemental Gearbolt and submitted by Sin.
You've been listening to the Overclocked Podcast. Next week's playlist is Boss Music. We recommend stocking up on potions beforehand. To submit your own suggestions, or just say welcome to your doom. That, that would be a weird thing to say, but um, hit us up on Twitter at OCR Podcast. Email us at podcast at ocremix.org or visit us on the forums at ocremix.org. This week's lyrical wisdom. Gods ain't gonna help ya, son. You'll be sorry for what ya done. Them gods gonna hurt ya, son. You'll be sorry for what you done, you'll be sorry for what you done. Thank you.